Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. Melodious voice of Amanda, <laughs> Catherine, right. Catherine, Amanda. I always Amanda forget Catherine. that it's actually. Oh, I thought Catherine was your real first name. Mm-mm. No. Oh, it's your middle name. Mm-hmm. Okay, Maybe you're thinking that because that I knew so much of my sister Katie, and she goes oh, by Katie, that- <laughs> but it's her name Stella Catherine. We both have the same middle oh. name. My parents ran out of name options by the sixth. <laughs> They were just like, this is too hard. This one gets the same as the other one. <laughs> Why not? And it's as someone named Katie, if my first name was Stella, I would totally go by Stella. That's yeah. a great name. Some of her friends call her that still. Oh. Well, yeah. whatever. Hi, everybody. Uh, Hi. We, this is a, like a standalone episode because I just had a friend forward me this article and it's actually been out for a couple of years. So it might be old news to people, yeah. but um, many thanks to my friend Noreen for forwarding this to me, but it was so fantastic and I think hit on something that I've been thinking about or struggling with or wondering about. And it, I just thought it was so good. And so I asked if we could record uh, an episode about it. So here we are. Yes, it is. It's on Medium, right? That's where it's mm-hmm. published. So it's a Medium yep. article from June 22nd of 2020. Um, yes. By Sun Young Shin. And it's called It's Not White Fragility, It's White Flammability. And we'll put a link to yes. it in the show notes so that everyone can look at it. But yeah, yeah. you want to give the well, overview? I definitely, I definitely want to get into the meat of the article and why I found it so powerful and helpful. Um, but I did end up looking a, up a little bit about this author. I was just so mm-hmm. curious. I thought it was wonderful. And I realized, like, wow, she wrote this a month after George Floyd's murder, mm-hmm. and she lives in Minneapolis, and just started to get into her work a little bit more. So do you want to know a little bit more about Sun Young Shin? Yeah, tell me. Okay. Um, for people who are interested and want to learn more about her work, she does consulting. She's a creative writer, a poet. Her website is sunyungshin.com, S-U-N-Y-U-N-G-S-H-I-N.com. She is a Korean-American adoptee to white parents and has actually written about that. So I thought, ooh, we should reach out to her when we want to talk about that issue specifically. I know that's something on our list of things to look at or the weird things that can happen when white women participate in transracial adoption. Um, But she, so she writes about that. She grew up in the Chicago suburbs. She went to college pretty young, like 15. She went to college Mm. and then worked in corporate America, different jobs, Um, went to grad school at night, got her teaching license, a master's degree. She taught in Minneapolis and was for like over a decade was working at an arts high school as a teacher, as one of the only teachers of color there. Uh, she writes about this in another article. She just has a bunch of articles on Medium. I read them all. They were so good. Uh, awesome. But 
I thought this background was interesting, especially since you and I are both from the Midwest. And I think there's, you know, we grew up in Iowa. Um, Sun Young Shin is in Minneapolis. Minnesota and Iowa are not like that different in terms no. of of white womanness, I should mm-hmm. say. Um, she so she was a teacher for a long time. Was an editor f- for like a community magazine media kind of situation for just a little while, but now she's an adjunct instructor, writer, um, consultant about creative writing, anti-racism. She edited this book. Um, oh shoot, I had the title and now I can't find it. Oh no no no! It's an edited anthology that she uh, organized that is about. Um, living in Minnesota as a person of color. It's called A Good Time for the Truth, Race in Minnesota. And it was published by the Minnesota Minnesota State Historical Society. But it, from what I've been able to read thus far, is a beautiful anthology. So even if you don't live in Minnesota, I think you would find it really powerful. But especially for majority white spaces, if you're in any of those spaces, this would be a really great read. Um, yeah. By the way, she also worked with Susan Raffo who we interviewed with Kara Page a while back. And so I thought, oh, it's such a small world. So I am just moved by her work so much. Um, Her poetry is beautiful. So please, please check out her website and check out her work. And this article is about advocating – she says that she herself has – used Robin D'Angelo's term white fragility. She's, mm-hmm. you know, cited it in her own work, but that it it never was quite right. And she writes about why that is and what she's offering up in its place. And in the title of the article, it tells you that she is offering up this metaphor of flammability instead of mm-hmm. the metaphor of fragility. So I, I want us to go through the article. There's another article that she wrote that I want to talk about a little bit too, but uh, one of the first lines talks about how, as this concept, Robin D'Angelo wrote a book about it. D'Angelo herself is a white woman. Um, and it it's one of the, like, the top-selling books after George Floyd's murder. To, mm-hmm. You know, when white people especially were in book clubs or whatever, that often they were drawn to that book and to that concept. And so Sun Young Shin writes about how the more that she thought about it, that she was realizing that it was very popular, especially with white women, with white women. And so that was the first moment that I stopped in the article. I thought, yes. And why? Mm -hmm. Like what, you know, I've had friends of color who've said, oh, this term is very useful for me. I've had friends of color that don't like that concept and, you know, they don't think it's useful. Same with white people. So it's not like a universally agreed on concept. But I do think that Sun Yingshin is hitting on something that mm-hmm. white women especially like really love that term. And I wonder what that's about. I should say like liberal white women that are like wanting to learn about or at least like perform some level of anti-racism. What do you think that's about? Well, I think it, I mean, there's so much of it that even goes back to a lot of the things that Ruby Hamid discusses in the White Tears, Brown Scars about you know, white women's tears and they are meant to portray a vulnerability, but they're really anything but vulnerable. They're very powerful. And I think it's just a way it's the, the white women playbook that we've talked about before, like that we almost learn out of like 
the way that we almost display power is through harnessing it through, through the like back door of vulnerability, I guess mm. is maybe right. Like is, is it still is a way to couch ourselves in some sort of virtuous role. I think if you can or describe least, yourself yeah. as fragile or as yeah. vulnerable or something, then you're not having to take the accountability I think as much yeah. as if you really look at it for what it is, which is harmful, you don't, we're not yeah, willing to yeah. own that part of it. I think like in fairness to read more about D'Angelo's concept and how it gets used, it's like the, the idea that at any moment you poke at someone's whiteness and they like are very sensitive, you know, it's like a, like that's how she's using the term fragility is like a hyper sensitivity, at least how I understand the mm -hmm. concept. But mm -hmm. I think when you start to use it in shorthand, and we talked with Ruby about this last week in our interview with her, when you put out an idea into the world, people aren't always going to take the time to really work through all the nuances of it or always use it in the appropriate way. And I yeah. think you're right. I think there's something about like it's easier to say, oh yes, I have white fragility because even just the way that it that it sounds is like I'm delicate, you know. Mm -hmm. Like you know, and, and I don't think that's the intention of the originator of that concept to right, right. have that be the way people take it up. Um, but I really did so appreciate this article for that reason because it creates a metaphor that I think is harder to twist in a way. So Sunil yeah. Shin is, is suggesting flammability. And she says as a poet, she likes the alliteration and, you know, that they're yeah. both F yeah. words, but there is this, um, because like, I think danger the way, that, yeah, the way that I think about it, like when the way it's been appropriated by white women, the way is, white fragility. Yeah. The way white yeah. fragility has been appropriated and maybe misunderstood from what D'Angelo meant it to be is more of like a, I'm fragile. People need to be careful because they might hurt me instead of I can hurt other people with my actions. Right. You know, and that, yes, whiteness is quick to cry foul, mm -hmm. but it's anything but delicate you know mm -hmm, like it mm -hmm. is so and and actually this is what Sonia Shin says in the article and they'll quote her directly she says whiteness itself is anything but fragile whiteness is an extremely durable substance an ideology a set of practices and policies across all sectors of American society ever adapting to each and every attempt at equality and justice made by non-white people whiteness is a force and that makes so much more sense you know to frame yeah. it that way that and reminds it's not to me say of that what, it reminds me of what ruby was saying about like how whiteness appropriated feminism as well like mm. anything that it mm. can take and then use to its advantage that's what it does you know it's just this all-encompassing force right and i don't even know if like getting rid of the concept of fragility is even what Sun is advocating for even what I would add, like, maybe it is useful for something. I don't know. Um, but in the article, she says, of all the countless encounters I've had with white fragility, I may have thought no matter what I say, this white person's going to react with anger and accusations and exclamations of their own innocence and my wrongness for attacking them and nothing good will come of it. All of that reminded me of Ruby Hammond's book and the conversation we had with her. Mm -hmm. um, Sun Yang Shin goes on to say, I never thought this white person is fragile. 
this white person's whiteness is fragile, or even this white person's idea of themselves is fragile. I <laughs> thought and felt in my body, this white person is dangerous because they don't know they're white. They are living yeah. a script. They are in a play, and I am caught in it with them. Mm-hmm. That yeah. really smacked me in the face in the best possible way. Like, yes, yes. So she goes on to suggest like flammability, and and the, I, <laughs> the image in my head is like those polyester outfits that you know would just like immediately burst into <laughs> flames if lit with a match. And she's mm-hmm. very clear that it's the what ignites it is not what someone who isn't white does or says to the white person that it's like always smoldering that it doesn't need a a match or like antagonism to ignite it. That she says at the end here, often there is nothing non-white people can do to prevent being burned too often to death. It seems like no matter what we do, whiteness just needs oxygen to catch fire. Mm -hmm. And that, that, knowing that she wrote this in Minneapolis a month after George Floyd's murder, we are recording this shortly after another black man was killed by police in LA. Mm -hmm. Um, That it's just like this idea that just breathing, like just existing, like Mm -hmm. that oxygen is all white supremacy needs to ignite. And then I get back to the question that we asked (laughs) Ruby, which is like, so how do you, what do you even do about it? Like, how do we fight back against that? Dismantle it? I don't know. I mean, I I don't, I know you ask this question a lot and it's not that Mm -hmm. I don't also have that question, but I don't, there is no answer to that question. At least I don't think there is. It's like, it's just the, like everything we do all the time that, will have some sort of impact. And, mm-hmm. and for me, actually, that's one reason that like our language and metaphors are really, really powerful. Because if I move the world, if I think about myself, and this sounds like I hate myself, I don't hate myself, but I am aware that because of my positionality in the world in all sorts of ways, not just my racial identity, but I'm if I am hyper aware of how that is dangerous, then I'm going to move in the world in a very different way. If I see myself as having some like toxic ooze coming out of me that I don't want to get on anybody, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe that sounds like overdramatic to some people. But if I presume that I can do harm in a space, in a meeting, in an interaction, I will engage in that interaction in a very different way and Mm -hmm. it it can feel weird at first and it you don't want to swing so far the other direction that you're just like this like clamped up person like presuming things that may or may not be true for the other person in their interaction or in the relationship you know Mm -hmm. i it's not to say that when i am in an interaction that i presume i know what that person's experience is or how their identity has impacted them. But what I can presume is that my whiteness is a factor and I need to just be cognizant of ways that I might wield it that could hurt this other person. It just seems like if you think about it that way, like, oh, I'm carrying like a giant piece of wood and if I turn around really fast, like a giant two by four, you know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. I'm going to be really careful how mm-hmm. I turn around because I could mm-hmm, knock somebody out mm-hmm. if I turn around too fast. Yeah. Like I can't put it down 
but I can definitely like walk around more carefully than just right. like la la la, and then look at all these people that are laying on the ground and say, "Oh, how sad for them." I wonder what knocked them to the ground. <laughs> right, right. I did. Yeah, I think that goes back to what she says that this white person is dangerous because they don't know they're white. They don't know they're yeah. not an individual. They think they're an original. And I mm-hmm. think, yeah, maybe acknowledging that that's and recognizing that that is the danger that you can carry. Um, or just to not trust our judgment or perspective mm-hmm. on things. Mm-hmm. Like if me and a bunch of other white people are concluding something, I should know enough to be like, huh, red flag. You know, like yeah. probably we don't have all the answers here. Like there's, I think there's just ways, again, that's why I think this like flammability is so helpful. Like what helps me tamp that down or like pour water on that or keep that from hurting other people that metaphors are just so, so powerful. Like in some of the workshops that we do, we talk about the framing of things. So like at schools, and maybe we've talked about this before on the podcast, but you have a lot of school administrators that are genuinely worried about racial disparities in their school. They, mm-hmm. they do genuinely care about it, but they're like, why are these kids dropping out? Like, look at the, the dropout rate is so high. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, if that's what we're calling it and that's how we're thinking about it, then you're going to imagine solutions that are like interventions for that kid to keep them from dropping out. Right. Mm-hmm. You may get to the root of the problem, but it's going to be a really circuitous, circuitous route. If you instead are thinking of it as a push out problem, suddenly totally new like solutions, totally new strategies appear to you mm-hmm. and make sense. Right. Like if we, mm-hmm. then we're like, well, who's doing who's pushing these kids out and we got to get them to stop pushing. Like suddenly you're marshalling resources for a totally different thing or like to say we have a war on drugs. Mm-hmm. Like, well, if it's a war on drugs, police, increasing police and militarizing police makes sense because we're in a yep. war. Yeah. If we call it an opioid epidemic, militarizing police does not make any sense. It's like, yep. then we need better health centers and blah, blah, like, you know, better health care. Mm-hmm. So I, I just, this, it's one of the reasons I really like could not stop thinking about this article because I am such a believer in metaphor as a tool that can really help us. And that ha- it's not just an idea. It's not just language. It has material consequences in the world for how we narrate a situation, like yeah. how we think about it. So what is her other article that you oh, yeah. looked up well, with this? Th- I mean, of course, just like anything, there's just so many rabbit holes we could always go down. And I really do hope that she would be willing to talk to us at some point because I think she mm-hmm. has a lot to say that would connect to this podcast. But another article she wrote is called is imposter syndrome just for white women. Okay. What do you know about the concept of imposter syndrome? This is actually like another metaphor in a way. Yeah. What do you, I mean, what imposter you about syndrome you know about is just when um, you feel like you don't belong and like you don't have the credentials, you're not good enough to perform whatever it is, whether it's a work situation or, some other sort of, I don't know. Like you public. don't deserve yeah. to be there. Yeah. Yes. You don't, you haven't done enough. You're not qualified enough. You don't have the background, yeah. whatever it takes to be there. Yeah. In my former life as a professor, um, the academy, like academia, 
this is a really common thing that people talk about a lot, like, you know, imposter syndrome for all sorts of reasons that are often tied to people's identities. Like whether you're a woman of color or you're a queer person or you're a first generation college student, you know, there's a lot of ways it can manifest. So it's been something I've heard about, talked about for a really long time. Ironically, I had just seen a tweet where someone said, can we just acknowledge that it's not imposter syndrome? It was a person of color saying um, that it's actually just like our reaction to working in a racist system. <laughs> like <laughs> That's all that it is, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, yeah, that, yes. And then I just happened to read Sun Yung Shin's article about the history of this term, that it came from a paper, like a research paper from psychologists Pauline Rose Clance and Suzanne Imes in 1978. Hmm. And Shin is pulling this from a Time magazine article in 2018 by Abigail Abrams that goes over this idea. And then um, she's right, kind of like, you know, opining about how she, what she makes of this. So 1978, these two psychologists, uh, white women, come up with this idea to describe really what you just said. Here's the academic language they used mm-hmm. an internal experience of intellectual phonies, which appears to be particularly prevalent and intense among a select sample of high achieving women, despite outstanding academic and professional accomplishments, women who experience the imposter phenomenon persist in believing that they are really not bright and have fooled anyone who thinks otherwise numerous achievements, which one might expect to provide ample objective evidence of superior intellectual functioning do not appear to affect the imposter belief. Any guess what their sample was like the demographics of their psychological study? Probably like white women, thirty to forty-five. <laughs> 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 Primarily white middle to upper class women between the ages of twenty and forty-five, all yeah. in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Shin writes, and this this is great. I offer this partly because I think that it's a fascinating idea, but also just her writing is so great to entice people to buy her books and go to her website. Mm-hmm. She says, she writes, I don't know how many white middle to upper class white women between the ages of 20 and 45 there are, but they're definitely not the majority of society. How is it that their syndrome leaked into our lives when we aren't privy to the same advantages of being white? Of course, it leaked into our lives because white psychology practiced by white people and designed for white people is mostly what we have. Um, but we can resist. We don't have to accept every syndrome that is really about white masculinity and white masculinity's hierarchical imaginary with white men on top, white women below, and so on. Um, imposter syndrome needs to be turned on its head. So the real thieves, white supremacy culture, white female supremacy, middle class dominance can be seen for what they are. Mm-hmm. I thought it was great. At yeah. some point she writes a line too. That's like, of course this all happens because shit runs downhill. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, what I really appreciated is, you know, she is speaking to fellow people of color Mm-hmm. But as a white person reading it, to me, there were so many lessons to be learned in terms of when I am experiencing something that's frustrating, it, saying that it's some like universal thing, or again, as like a feminist thinking it's like a woman thing when mm-hmm. really it's a white woman thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, just as someone who works with other people, thinking about the ways that I exacerbate this idea or you know, and furthering this myself. So there's a couple other parts I wanted to read. Um, She says, we need to be done. We being, you know, 
people of color, need to be done metabolizing white people's repressed emotions and sense of inadequacy simply because they have not acknowledged the centuries of violence and the unexplored moral, psychic, and spiritual costs that they have paid and continue to pay, while too many of us pay with our lives, either on the street or in the hospital or in the classroom or the courtroom. The lesson is this. Our failures are our own and our people's, but our successes are theirs, a testament to their tolerance. And then she goes on to say, time to dump imposter syndrome back to white women's psychology and let them deal with it. They're more than capable. They're not fragile. They want everything we've ever had. Our land, our water, our bodies, our babies, our skin tones, our hairstyles, our stories, our music, our spiritual practices, our flavors, our symbols, our cultures. Let's at least give them back imposter syndrome. So just like such a perfect example of what we've been talking about, about white feminism specifically for the last, you know, however many months we've been Mm -hmm. learning, focusing on that, that even something like imposter syndrome that doesn't have white in the title, doesn't have woman in the title, but it's something that a lot of white women talk about and experience and feel, and then label as this thing that everyone has, even though it's gendered and raced and classed, Mm -hmm. then that seeps into the lives of other people and is like an additional layer of fuckery that they have to navigate. Yeah. Well, I think that's like one of the main um, aspects of white supremacy is just that it becomes all of our experiences we take as default to the point of yeah. not even having to acknowledge them because they just are for us. And I think that recognition that we're just not the default, like you just can't see it as baseline status it's not the same for everybody yeah i i think that they're just at the most fundamental like curiosity and not presuming that my experience is universal coupled Mm -hmm. with a recognition of history and context that Mm -hmm. are very likely playing a role in this situation which means we have to know our history and know that context (laughs) Which brings us back to what we're doing here. Like, that's what is helpful, I think, is the more we know about that giant two by four we're carrying, the less harm we can do. And I like, hopefully someday can put the fucking thing down and like set it on fire and call it a day. That would be great. (laughs) Use that flammability for something. (laughs) For good, good purposes. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Well, thank you for making time today. And I hope everybody listening. Sending the article along. We will link to um, both of those articles and to her webpage and stuff too. So great. Everybody can go look at her work. A great day, everyone. All right. Healthy and yeah, move in the world in loving ways. And awareness. (laughs) All right. Okay. Bye, guys. Bye.